0: In chapter 14, and read to the end of that chapter. And again, our sermon study today will cover both chapters. Numbers uh, chapter 14, before we read this word, let's go to the Lord again in a word of prayer and seek his blessing on our study. O gracious Lord and God, we pray that just as you have shepherded your people throughout all ages, so you would shepherd us through your word. Give us your Holy Spirit. So that we might follow you, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. You're now God's word as we pick it up in Numbers chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, "Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness?" Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. They said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a greater nation and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, It's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he's killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation." Please pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned, according to your word. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, Turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness." And of all your number I listed in the census from twenty years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land that I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness." And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of these men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies." For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites, who lived in that hill country, came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, it is uh, an exceedingly long passage, but so far as the details uh, go, the outline of the whole thing, it's relatively easy to understand. Uh, It is one more account of rebellion in the wilderness, just like the two chapters that came before it. Actually, as you remember the history of the people, the rebellion goes back much farther than that. You may remember things like the golden calf incident or the waters of Meribah or the rebellion by the Red Sea or even the people still in Egypt the first time that Moses appeared to Pharaoh and made his demands, saying, the Lord look on you and judge, because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. The people have been nothing if not consistently rebellious from the very first time that the Lord sent Moses to bring them up. But now their rebellion and unbelief has reached The tipping point. In Numbers chapter 13, they finally reach their goal. I know that the book of Joshua comes later, and that's all about the conquering of the promised land, but in Numbers 13, they're already there. Fourteen months after they left Egypt, not 40 years. Fourteen months, and they're at the edge of the promised land. They came close enough to taste it, and some of them actually did. And now their toes are inching over the border into Canaan, and they still conclude that the Lord was against them. They still thought that he had brought them all this way just to abandon them in the wilderness. As I said, the shape of the story is easy enough to understand. And from the New Testament perspective, so is the application. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, That these things, specifically the wilderness wanderings and the rebellion, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That means that this story, this account, is one more cautionary tale for us. It's another warning about the rebellion that hides in our heart, just like it hid in theirs. But much more than that, this passage is an invitation. The rebellion of these people is really all that more tragic when you compare it to the character of the God who was actually with them. If they were on their own, this would make perfect sense. But because they were not, it's far worse. But the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who led them and fed them through their days in the wilderness thus far, he was certainly able to bring them into the land that was just over the horizon means that the best way to guard against their kind of rebellion is to learn to trust in the God that they did not believe. And he's going to be our focus today as we look at this passage. Today, going uh, through Numbers 13 and 14, I want to help you look at four things that are worth believing about the God of Numbers. The first is that we need to believe in God's good gifts. God's good gifts. Now, the whole drama of the passage is built on the realization that God is determined to give good gifts to His people. You can find that in any number of places in the Scriptures. Old and New Testament, it's everywhere. We see it very clearly in the opening verses of chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Actually, that's the consistent designation of the land of Palestine in the Old Testament. It's not called simply uh, the land of the Canaanites. It's not called simply the place that you still haven't conquered yet. It's called the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's what God almost always calls it when he refers to it and speaks of it to his people. The emphasis falls on the fact that it comes from him and it is for them. It's a gift from God. It's a reminder for us of who God is. He's the giving God. He's the benevolent God. He is the God who provides for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. Things like land that he promised to Abraham and his descendants forever. They didn't have a claim on it. There was no deed uh, from the Canaanites saying this belongs to uh, him except for that one little place we'll learn about later. They had no claim on it, no ancestral heritage, but God gave it to them anyway. And he gives more things to his people as you read through the through the Scriptures. He gave His law at Sinai. He gave Moses to be a shepherd for them. He gave them His promise. and He gave them His presence. They keep going through the Scriptures for His new covenant people. The Lord gives us every good thing. He gave His Holy Spirit to inspire the prophets so that we can read what He demands and desires from us. He gave us His Son to be our Savior. He gives us His grace so that we would believe in Him. He gives us salvation. He gives us faithfulness. He gives us fruitfulness. He gives us sanctification. He gives us fellowship with one another. Every good thing that we have comes from His hand. God gives good gifts to His children. In fact, He can't give anything different. His gifts to us are determined by who He is. Because he is good, so he gives good things to his children. And what we find in Numbers 13 is that, in fact, God wants us to look forward to the good things that he's giving to us. He wants us to have confidence in his giving. That's why he sent out the spies in the first place. You notice that they were sent out, and they they brought back some military information, didn't they? The people and their cities and the fortifications and where they are. But they also learned about the land. Are there trees there? Are there any resources? Can you bring back some of the fruit? Can you help the people see what they don't see yet? Can you help them to see and understand what is going to be so good about this place that God is bringing us? We want them to have confidence in God's good gifts. And so they do. They come back and they bring a sample of the produce. They return with that classic assessment of the promised land. They say it flows with milk and honey. That means it's a fertile land. There's milk and honey because there are animals and flowers. There are animals and flowers because there's rain and sunshine. There's rain and sunshine because God has blessed this land that he's giving to the people. And God wanted them to see that. Not just so that they could prepare for war, but so that they might have confidence in the promises of the Lord. Now, significantly, chapter 13 says that among the places that the spies searched out was that little town, it had become a very large town by now called Hebron. Hebron, you remember, was the place where the Lord promised the land to Abram in the first. Hebron was the place in chapter 13 of Genesis where after Abraham separated from Lot, he settled there. Hebron was the place where God first told Abram to set out and to go on the length and the breadth of the land everywhere that the sole of your foot will tread. This land I will give to your people. It's almost as though uh, these, uh, these spies of the Israelites are now retracing the steps of their forefather and retracing the steps of God's covenant promises to Hebron. God wants his people to look forward what he's giving to them. He wants us not just to understand his gifts, he wants us to believe in them. The Lord wants us to search out His promises and connect them to our lives so that we can see what He's doing, so that we can look forward to the good things He's promised you. No, not land. I'm not talking about a, a physical inheritance. I'm talking about those spiritual gifts. I'm talking about relational wholeness. When He overcomes the sin that's in our heart, and we can go to those around us with repentant hearts. The good things that God has promised for us. He wants us to look forward and to have confidence But you need to know that when you look forward to the gifts God is giving you and the things that he's promised you, you will find that those things often come with obstacles attached. So you notice that when the spies returned, they said, yeah, that land is really, really good. But, you know, it's full of people, big people. Really, really tall people, like one whole tribe is like the size of Goliath, and they say, who's Goliath? I don't know, that's like 400 years, but we've heard that he's big, and they're all like that. And they live in fortified cities, and we don't have siege works, we don't have resources, we'll never be able to overcome them. All those things were true as well. You notice that when Joshua and Caleb encouraged the Israelites, they never pretended that the Canaanites didn't exist. That was a true assessment on the ground. Yes, it's good, and yes, there are obstacles. Obviously, God could have done it another way. He had just freed his people from bondage and he had brought them out and decimated the entire army of Egypt and the people of Israel never had to touch a single sword or spear to see it done. He could have done that all over again. He could have driven them out of the land with hornets. I don't know. He could have have caused a plague to wipe them out before they got there. You remember that passage in Isaiah? 185,000 of the Assyrian army dead in a single day. God could have done that with the Canaanites, but he didn't. He chose not to. It wasn't his plan. And quite frankly, that's not normally God's plan for you either. God promises good things to his people. But those good things normally come with obstacles. So the Lord promised to keep you in perfect peace when your mind is stayed on Him. Oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? But you might find that in order to do that, He also gives you outward circumstances that show you how much you need Him, and not yourself. Things like suffering and hardship and sickness. Relational distress, things that sharpen your sense of your need for His help in your life so that your mind would be stayed on him, so that he will guard you with perfect peace. The Lord has promised to sanctify his children. What a wonderful promise, what a good gift that he gives. But you may find that that sanctification normally comes through friction. It comes through a long process of seeing and turning from the sin in your heart that you wish wasn't actually there to begin with. This is the way the Lord works. This is the way he worked with his own son in the flesh. Remember how Hebrews tells us that for the glory set before him, what a wonderful promise, Jesus endured the cross. What a terrible obstacle. Hebrews tells us that Jesus himself learned obedience through what he suffered. So we find that this is what the Lord does. Don't be surprised, dear believer. When God promises you good things, but you find that those good things come with obstacles, don't be surprised. Instead, believe in God's perfect strength. That's our second point. God's perfect strength. I've already mentioned that when the spies returned from their mission, they all agreed about the facts on the ground. Good land full of people. At least initially, they were all in agreement But where they disagreed was on what they ought to do with that information. Caleb, you see, was the one who says, we ought to go up immediately. Chapter 13, verse 30. Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. And the rest said, no, we're not. No, we can't. No, we shouldn't. They said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Notice that it's a disagreement on the issue of strength, isn't it? They have more people than we have. They have better resources than we have. They have stronger weapons than we have. They have higher walls than we have. They have all these things that we haven't got. And we're not strong enough to take the land that the Lord says we ought to take. Now, to make matters worse, they even began to poison the hearts of God's people with lies. Verse 32 says they brought a bad report. The word there is evil. They brought the people an evil report of the land that they had spied out. They started to lie about the land. So instead of the land that they already agreed was very good and flowing with milk and honey, full of good things for God's people to eat, they said the land devours its inhabitants. If you live there, it will swallow you up. They said, not just one tribe of people, but all the people that we saw there were giants. And they used the name of the Nephilim, that tribe of ancient warriors that died out in the flood. They weren't around anymore, but they said, you know, they're there. They said, we felt like grasshoppers by comparison. It's all the rage nowadays to eat cricket flour, isn't it? But but Ian Duguid points out that in the ancient world, the grasshopper was the smallest edible animal. They're saying something like, by comparison, we look like a shrimp cocktail. Right? And the point of what they're telling the people is that if you go into that land to do what God has told you to do, you're going to be eaten alive. You will not survive. Now the question is, how could 12 men Who all saw the same situation come to such vastly different conclusions about what they ought to do? The answer is that the majority of the men who saw the land forgot to account for the strength of God. They left him out. They left him out completely. And the text leaves him out completely so that we would see that. Did you notice that after that initial mention in chapter 1 of uh, verse 1 of chapter 13, rather? The name of the Lord does not show up until the people have already decided to go back to Egypt. In order to heighten the suspense, not even Caleb mentions the name of the Lord. All of their negotiations are all about earthly people dealing with earthly things and military strategies. And what are we strong enough to do and what are we not strong enough to do? And God doesn't reappear until chapter 14 verse 3 why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? That's exactly what unbelief always does. Unbelief evaluates the situation according to our own strength, and then unbelief approaches God with our conclusions rather than with our questions. Unbelief says, I can't convince my kids to come back to church. Therefore, God's covenant faithfulness must not apply to my family. Unbelief says, the cancer is incurable. Therefore, God must not have any other plans for me or or, or any fruitfulness for me in this life. Unbelief says, you know, dead people don't rise again from the grave. Therefore, Jesus must have been a pretty good teacher, but he got some of that other stuff wrong, didn't he? That's how unbelief works. It ignores the strength of God. And then it comes to its own independent conclusions. Do you hear the conclusions in the Israelites' words? Their assumption is God can't give us the things he said he was going to give to us. The people are too big. The cities are too strong. We can never accomplish what God says we ought to accomplish. And then they go on. It would be better to have died in the wilderness. It'd be better to die as slaves back in Egypt. Our families are going to become captive. It's all been for nothing. And since the Lord has obviously abandoned us, wouldn't it be better to go ahead and abandon him while we still have the chance? You see, they thought they knew what God was doing. They thought they knew what God was capable of and what his limitations were, but they did not believe in the strength of God. As a result, they found his commandments easy to ignore. That's what makes Caleb and Joshua's encouragement so profound. They saw the same situation that these other ten men saw. They knew what the Israelites were about to walk into. They also calculated the thickness of the walls and the fortified cities. They also saw the Anakites in their oversized armor. They saw all the facts, but after all that they had seen, they also remembered the God who was with them. Chapter 14, verse 8. Caleb said, and Joshua said with him, If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That's what makes the difference in a believer's life. The Lord is with us. Now, can you imagine how the conversation with God outside of Canaan might have gone differently if all the people of Israel shared Caleb's heart? If instead of beginning with their conclusions, they began with faith in what the Lord was able to do, can you imagine if they came with their questions rather than their assertions? Take just verse 3, for example without all the faithless assumptions behind their statement, what if they came to the Lord and made that a question instead? Lord, why are you bringing us into this land? Why are you doing this? Why are we here? Can you imagine how the conversation would have gone differently? Maybe. Perhaps the Lord might have said something like, you know, I'm bringing you in here because I love you. I'm bringing you in here because I chose you. I'm bringing you into this land because I made a covenant promise that shall not be broken to one of your ancestors who believed in me. I'm bringing you up so that I can show the world my power just like I did in Egypt. I'm bringing you in so that you can see firsthand just what I am able to do, so that your hearts might be knit to my heart forever, so that you will have one more reason to trust me when you see the way that I am able to make your path straight before you. They didn't believe what the Lord had already done for them. They didn't understand that he had planned this out. They didn't realize that the obstacles attached to God's gifts were part of his design. They were there for a reason. The nations that were living in the land were one more opportunity for God to reveal that biblical truth that the strength of God is made perfect through the weakness of his people. And they didn't understand that. They didn't understand that because they refused to believe it. And because they refused to believe in God's strength, they found it easy to reject God's gifts. That brings us to the third truth we need to believe about the God of Numbers. That is God's covenant consistency. God's covenant consistency. Now you notice that after they have rejected God's gift, they also found it easy to reject God's leaders. And they're on the verge of stoning Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb all to death and going back on their own until the Lord intervenes. And when the Lord shows up, he proves that he's been listening to their grumbling all along. And he pronounces the same judgment that he threatened after that incident with the golden calf. You remember, don't you? The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to start all over again with you. Now pay attention in what the Lord says in verses 10 and 11. Pay attention to two words that both begin with D. The words are despise and dispossess. First, the Lord says that the unbelief of Israel was proof that they despised him. Verse 10, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all that I've done among them? That is intentionally strong language. The Lord is not dealing with ignorant nations in some jungle somewhere, groping in spiritual darkness, hoping for some spark of truth. The Lord is dealing with the people who have seen His works and heard His words and turned and rejected in the sight of what they knew full well. This language approaches something like that difficult text in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 6 that says that it is impossible to restore to repentance those who have tasted of the heavenly gift and seen the gift of the Holy Spirit and then have turned away. The Lord is not dealing here with normal human doubt. Oh, I find this hard to accept. He's dealing with hard-hearted disbelief. He's dealing with spiritual recalcitrance, and the Lord says they have despised him. Secondly, verse 11, the Lord says he will strike the people with pestilence and he will disinherit them. That is equally strong language. All the more significant because it's being uttered right outside the land that they were supposed to inherit. The land of promise that he said he would give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land that was going to be their portion forever. A perpetual inheritance for them and for their children, a physical, geographical reminder of God's covenant love. And the Lord says, I'm going to disinherit them. I'm going to cut them off completely. I'm going to destroy their bodies with pestilence, he says, and sever the cords of the covenant. This is damnation language. There's no two ways about it. This is eternal separation in no uncertain terms. And I think if you are reading this text, even semi-charitably, you probably agree that it seems like that's the only thing left. What do you do with the people who have decided to hate their deliverer? The whole nation has just declared that they want nothing to do with the God of the Exodus. They would rather die in the wilderness than follow him into Canaan. And had it not been for the intercession of their shepherd, Moses, that's what the Lord would have done. Instead, Moses prays. He intercedes with the Lord for the people, and he intercedes on the basis of God's covenant covenant consistency. Notice Moses' prayer. It has one petition, and that petition is backed up by two theological arguments. The petition is in verse 19 of chapter 14. Moses says, please pardon the iniquity of this people. That's all he's asking for. That's it. That's the only request he makes, He's not acting, asking for success in the land. He's not asking for healing. He's not asking for prosperity, just forgiveness. And that's all he asks for because that's everything. Lord, please pardon the iniquity of your people. But that comes on the basis of a twofold argument. First, Moses says that if the Lord destroys Israel, the nations will hear of it. Verse 15. If you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will conclude that you could not bring them into the land you swore to give to them. You know, if you're you're reading this text cynically, I suppose there's a way to say that that sounds like a theological PR spin. Right? That Moses is just trying to help God save face in the sight of the pagans. And if we were dealing with some businessman and his big ego, that might be the case. But we're not. We're dealing with the God of creation. And actually, his glory in the sight of the nations is everything as well. It's the reason everything exists. It's the reason that the universe was created to be an extension and a manifestation of God's eternal glory. So his initial argument is sound. God's glory is essential. His second argument is that God's glory will be seen more clearly by forgiving this people than by destroying them. That's because when God forgives his people, he reveals himself to be the God who never changes. The God who makes covenant promises and keeps them. Look at the argument, verse 17. And now please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying... The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And you remember the quote, don't you? you know that Moses is praying God's words back to himself. The declaration that Yahweh made when he came down and he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock after the golden calf incident, then the Lord descended and he proclaimed himself. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, steadfast love, covenant love, Perfect, divine, agape-type love. Love that does not change from season to season. Love that makes a promise and keeps it despite the personal cost involved. The God of steadfast love is the Lord who expresses his love in the smoking pot and the flaming torch. He's the God who invoked upon himself the covenant curse, when he passed between the pieces of the animals, while Abraham slept the, the sleep of death in Genesis chapter 15. And the Lord symbolically passing through, saying, "When my people break this covenant, the curse will fall on me." That's steadfast love. The Lord is the God who has carried His people to himself in the wilderness. He is the Lord who will carry their burdens like a loving and forgiving father. He is the Lord who will send his only son to bear their iniquity forever. And he will send him to carry yours as well if you trust him. So you know that even if the people who heard Moses' prayer didn't understand all of it, you do. From this side of the cross, you understand what he was praying. And the Lord to whom Moses was praying knew it better than you do. The Lord knew that he made promises to Abraham. He promised land, yes, yes, yes. But but he also promised a blessing. He also promised a seed, a single offspring who would come to be the blessing for all nations. And Moses was looking forward to that day. He wasn't just praying for those many who were around Canaan in the wilderness. He was praying for all that would come after this hard-hearted people. He was asking that God's covenant love would not be cut off prematurely, but that it would grow into fullness through the coming of the seed of Abraham. That's why he prayed the entire declaration from Exodus 34. He didn't stop at the first half, that part that we like about forgiveness. He kept going. You are the God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but also you do not let the guilty go unpunished. Because in the end, that's how the Lord does it. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, not by forgetting it, but by laying it on another. So Isaiah said, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul said he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And before it ever happened, Moses was praying. He was saying, Lord, do not let the nations just see one act of destruction. Rather, let them see the full blessing that you have promised to the completion of your covenants. So whether the people understood it or not, whether Moses himself completely understood what he was praying or not, you know what Moses was praying. He was praying God's covenant consistency that would bring Christ Jesus into the world and give him as a propitiation for our sins. He was praying that because that was the only hope for this people of avoiding the wrath and curse of God due to them for their sins, and it's your only hope as well. Well, we've seen God's good gifts, His perfect strength, and His covenant consistency. Finally, I want you to see God's gracious discipline. God's gracious discipline. If you've been around the church long enough, you've probably heard some preacher at some point. Uh, preach a sermon or or teach a Sunday school, talking about those great but-God statements in the Scriptures. There are some places in Scripture where that little phrase, uh, upon that little phrase, hinges all of our blessing and salvation in Christ Jesus, right? Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your sins, but God, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together through Christ Jesus. But God did this, and He stepped in. Psalm 73, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. And you can find other examples later. But in our text, that word, but, that leaves us unsettled. Chapter 14, verses 20 to 23. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned, according to your word, but... Truly as I live, jump down to verse 23, none of the men who have put me to the test shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And somebody says, wait a minute, that's that's not how it happens, right? I thought, forgive and forget, move on, pretend that it didn't happen. Can't we get past this? Isn't that how God forgives your sins when he forgives them? Doesn't he let you off scot-free from all of their consequences? And if you think people don't believe that God actually works that way, just remember what happened at the end of the chapter. Well, people made a loud show about mourning for their sins, and the next day they said, all right, plan A, we're going into Canaan. Here we go. All over, all past, water under the bridge, we're following the Lord now. And Moses says, that's not how it works. The Lord has pardoned their iniquity, and he has. That's not some some half-hearted platitude. What he means there is that he will not destroy and disinherit this nation. He has healed the rift in their fellowship between himself and this people. Nevertheless, they need to know, and we need to know, that even when our sins have been forgiven, very often those sins come with lasting consequences. It's true that God in His mercy, in His condescending grace, sometimes allows us to escape the lasting consequences of our sin. I think very often when He does that, He's being gracious to the people who would be affected by our sins and not just us. So it's possible for a sinfully abusive father to raise healthy, well-adjusted, loving children. It's possible. It happens sometimes. They can avoid the consequences of that sin. Sometimes a sinful habit of drowning your disappointments in alcohol, you know, every once in a while. Sometimes that doesn't turn into a larger addiction. Sometimes. And sometimes a life of laziness and work avoidance doesn't live to abject poverty. Sometimes the Lord allows us to avoid our consequences. Statistically speaking, that's not how it works most of the time. And actually, our sins against the Lord have consequences, too. Not just because of statistics. <laughs> not, not because of, of Newton's third law of motion. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Right? It's not that it works that way, but rather our sins have consequences because God, our loving Father, takes the discipline of His children very seriously. Again, Hebrews For those of you who aren't aware, we're studying Numbers so that we can study Hebrews later. So it's in the back of my mind as we're going through. It should be in the back of your mind as well. Hebrews tells us you had fathers in this life who disciplined you as they saw fit, meaning they didn't do it perfectly all the time. But God disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. What is God doing as he disciplines us? He's rooting out the sinfulness and the rebellion in our hearts. Because he's our loving father. Because he gives us nothing but that which is good. And he knows that in order to do that, one of the most effective ways to lead us into holiness is to show us the seriousness of our sin. And one of the best ways to do that is to allow us to have the sin we thought we wanted with all of its consequences. That's what he did with the Israelites. Verse 28, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, he says. He says it several times. Verse 32, verse 33, verse 35. Four times he solemnly swears that they will never set foot in the land of promise, except for Joshua and Caleb. They followed him faithfully, they followed him fully. But other than those two, their carcasses will bake under the desert sun. Because that was what they wanted for themselves, wasn't it? Verse 2. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. And the Lord says, You want it? You got it. So he condemns them to this life of wandering. Forty years is an answer for the 40 days that they spied out in the wilderness. He condemns them to wander until they know what it's like to live without the good things that God prepared for those who love him. Until their children are old. Until their lives are spent. Until they finally die outside the land they refuse to receive in the first place. And if that seems harsh, remember that God is playing the long game. He's dealing with the next generation. He's extending his covenant promises one more step. He's being gracious to make the fathers examples for the children. These people feared that their children would be snatched up and taken as spoil. And the Lord said, No, no, I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't do that. Actually, your children will inherit those things that you didn't want. He will bring them in, and they shall possess the land. And while the younger generation watched their parents waste away in the wilderness, it became a lesson for them. He allowed them to see their parents' sin. He allowed them to see sin's consequences. These things became an example for them so that they might not desire evil as their fathers had. And the Lord is still teaching those same lessons today. Teaching us not to reject the good gifts of God. Not to disbelieve in his perfect power. Teaching us that his covenant promises are larger than a generation. If you're here today, I hope he's teaching you those same lessons. Much more, I hope that he's teaching you that he can be trusted. That he's with you. That he has good things in store for your future. If you are in Christ... Those good things might often come with obstacles, might come with hardships, might come with suffering. But that's part of the plan too. He's working for you and he's with you. And you know it because he kept his covenant when he probably shouldn't have. And he'll keep his covenant promises for you as well. Let's pray. Oh gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would help us to see our Savior and to follow him. Make us, Father, obedient children. Help us to grow up into your household, knowing you and loving you. Oh, forgive your people for the many ways that we turn aside and reject your good gifts because we don't want the difficulty of receiving them. Thank you for calling us into salvation. We pray that If there are any here today who don't yet know you, you would give them faith in yourself and life according to your name. Help them, Father, by your Holy Spirit to grow in repentance and faith unto life. Help us by that same Spirit to grow in faithfulness to you as we walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to a table that proclaims to us the covenant faithfulness of God for an unfaithful people. As we come to this table, no one comes because we are righteous on our own. Nobody comes because we have done well this week. We had an exceptionally good spiritual outcome. We come because the Lord invites us. because he makes